Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm your host, Katie Halper, and I'm here with, of course, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Gabe Pacheco. Now, as you guys know, you can hear the Katie Halper Show on iTunes, you can hear the Katie Halper Show on SoundCloud, and when you're on iTunes, you gotta rate and review us. It's so easy, it takes like three seconds. Yeah, that's the gift that keeps on giving, so for this holiday season, why don't you, if if you like what you're hearing, give us a five-star rating and write something nice for us. Yeah, it takes no time at all. Also, you know what you could do for the holidays is give yourself the gift of Katie Halper Show bonus content. Uh, That means extended interviews. That also means totally extra bonus interviews. We're going to do that on today's show. You're going to love it. We got some, not not to brag, but we finally got Naomi Klein. Wonderful guest we've been trying to get. Love Naomi Klein. Love Naomi Klein. Um, and to do that, you just go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And you just donate $5 a month and you get all of this extra content. $5 a month is less than a drink, depending on the type of drink. If you drink a beer, I guess it's, it's maybe more. Not really, not in New York City, not if you go out. Yeah, it's a cup of coffee. It's a cup of coffee. So um, I'm not saying deprive yourself of a cup of coffee because... That could make you dysfunctional. That would do that to me. I was at an event the other day, and they were fundraising around something, and the woman was like, I realize that it's just the price of the New Yorker, and I'm going to quit my subscription to the New Yorker. So, guys, quit your subscription to the New Yorker. Yeah. One, support independent media. Yeah. Not the New Yorker. Yeah. Supporters. We have no corporate sponsors. We have no corporate sponsors. Yeah. We're not beholden to any special interest groups. Exactly. So you're going to get that raw, uncut. You know, unfiltered, unbought and unbossed, as Nina Turner quotes Shirley Chisholm for saying, I thank her for being unbought and unbossed. And I'm cut from that same cloth. Speaking of Nina Turner, I am Nina Turner, just in case folks don't know. And I'm the president of Our Revolution, and we are certainly proud to be a sponsor, one of the sponsors of the Sanders Institute, The Gathering. And I'm so glad that the Sanders Institute has brought this happy family together. I had the fortune of attending the Sanders Institute's Gathering, and this was in Burlington. Progressives, including some from the big screen, descending on Burlington this week. They'll be breaking down left-leaning issues like universal health care. Hispanic people, the voices of Asian people, the voices of African-American people. Those voices have to be a part of this. Yeah. Actors Danny Glover and Susan Sarandon making the trip, alongside activists like Cornell West. Yeah, this is a gathering, but this is not any gathering. This is a Sanders Institute. And political leaders, too. So these are not radical uh, ideas unless you think that justice uh, for all is a radical idea. San Juan Mayor Carmen Cruz says she wants not only to focus on the ideas themselves, but make sure that the progressive agenda materializes in concrete legislative action. So the Sanders Institute is an institute that was founded by Jane Sanders, the wife of Bernie Sanders. What we can do, come up with bold ideas and, uh, and move forward. And the gathering comes at a time when a lot of people in this room are wondering about the keynote speaker. Today is, you know, good news and, and bad news. Bernie 2020. <laughs> Will the Vermont senator make another run at the White House? If he has the best chance to uh, defeat President Trump, and if he thinks that he is, then he'll probably run. If he thinks that there's somebody else that can do it better, 
you'll probably support them. Jane Sanders says this conference isn't associated with the campaign. Her husband says it's about continuing to have their ideas come out of the shadows. But it was a great event. Roseanne DeMauro was there from the National U Nurses Union. The work that I've done in my life in the labor movement is some of the, the work that I'm the most proud of in my life. The mayor of San Juan was there. The mayor of Barcelona, Ada Calau, who was the first female mayor of Barcelona. And we decide to start at local level because the politics of austerity and corruption had destroyed the credibility of public institutions. We needed to provide real and concrete solutions through actions that change people's lives because the local level is the best place to improve democracy. Susan Sarandon. Now we have this swell of millennials and younger that are going to vote for the first time also in 2020. Our education system is not giving them a, a context, is not giving them history really uh, from a point of view that is relevant anyway. And um, they just know that we've messed up. <laughs> and now they're, they're demanding answers and they're demanding candidates and they're not interested in who the parties as much as the issues, which is a good thing. Danny Glover was there. What? Yeah, Danny Glover was there. He was on a bunch of panels. Friend of the show, Ben Jealous, was there. Yep. You prioritize organizing from the bottom up. You prioritize controlling states. Well, eventually you control Congress because you control redistricting. You're building a bench to run for all kinds of offices across the state. Well, then you have an incredible bench to run for the federal government. And so in this moment, I would encourage us not to despair because we don't control our federal government. It's great that we've taken back the House, and I want to thank everybody who's a part of that. But we all know <laughs> until you have the Senate and the presidency, you can't get a whole lot done. And we have to get a whole lot done. And I would say we have no choice but to make our, our cities, as Bernie did here, our counties, our states models, models for the rest of our country. We root this movement in our cities, in our counties, in our states. And while the work will feel harder in some ways, and we'll be focused to give our $5 or $27 to more candidates and more places and, and, and be organizing all the time and not just for the federal cycles, what we'll find is that we move further, faster. And also, Fernando Haddadji, who lost the election in Brazil to Bolsonaro, who's the fascist. Yes. Uh, he was there. Jim Zogby. One final thing I have to say. Um, something happened that I really can't let go without talking about. Mark Lamont Hill was fired from CNN. He was fired from CNN for a speech he gave at the UN where he talked about equal rights and human rights for everybody from the river to the sea. People um, who didn't want to hear that tried to make it into something it wasn't. And Mark, Hill, Mark Lamont Hill paid a price. Not only did he pay a price, but civil discourse pays a price. And the ability to talk about complicated issues pays a price. If we can't talk about Israel-Palestine, if we can't talk about Syria, if we can't talk about, because you've paid a price for that, if we can't talk about race, if we can't talk about immigration policy without jumping on people who disagree and trying to make something out of it that it's not and criminalize or weaponize um, our intolerance, 
um, then we all pay a price as a country. I'll never forget Bernie Four was um, meet the press one morning after having met with him and talked about issues. He said, they, they said, who, who advises you on foreign policy? And he said, Jim Zogby. And I said to my wife, holy shit. <laughs> holy shit. I said, I actually used that word. Um, I said, and that's civil. Because um, I'd always been, I'd worked for different presidential candidates and stuff. But it was like, oh, I don't know him. It's like, who's he? You know, whatever. Like, give me the Arab money or give me the Arab votes, but don't talk to me about, you know, I'm not going to acknowledge you publicly. Bernie had the courage to not only acknowledge me publicly, but do me and J Street and others on both sides of the issue, and then ask me to serve on the, on the, the, the platform drafting committee um, and respect the fact that I had an ability to talk about... Uh, uh, Medicare for all and to talk about uh, biggest my biggest victory was we won uh, something we suckered the Clinton people into it ending the death penalty because they we actually had the vote <laughs> Gus remembers it we had the vote for it and then they immediately called for a, a, a suspension of the vote where after we, wo we were winning because uh, they wanted to bring their people out in caucus because it was not Hillary's position but what happened was when they came back, I said to the chair, I said, well, it looks like they're back now. Have you whipped your people into line? And they were so embarrassed that they ended up saying, okay, you, 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 you got it. But that sense of, of that, that, that Bernie was respectful of people with points of view that had not been brought together, that he tried to convene us as we're doing this weekend, convening people of diverse points of view from a progressive side that can elevate discourse. John Cusack. That's right, from uh, Say, Say Anything, Anything fame. Yeah, yeah. And Con Air. He was also in Con Air. And um, High Fidelity. That's right. And The Paperboy, which I love. Paperboy, I don't think I ever saw that. That's not a big deal. All right. It's a film. Is it good? Loved it. 80s, 90s? Uh, it's uh, 2000s. Oh, okay, more recent. Sure. Oh, wait, is that that really scary movie that takes place in Florida in the Everglades? Where you going, Paperboy? Yeah, Matthew oh McConaughey's in it. Oh, my God, that is a bizarre movie. Nicole Kidman. I really just want to thank you for helping me get Hillary out of that hellhole. Well, I wouldn't go booking honeymoon just yet. Oh. But we are going to fight his sentence in the way it came about. Yes, it is so weird, and it came out of nowhere, and Zac Efron. That's right. Um, I think Lee Daniels directed it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who he did does, the butler? That's it. Yeah, yeah. Which I haven't seen. No, but uh, everybody should see the Paper Boy if you want to be disturbed. Yeah, it's a great movie to not see with the family. <laughs> it's a really disturbing movie, and John Cusack plays a gator hunter, and there's a really weird stuff going on with Matthew McConaughey. I think Lee Daniels just does a great job of getting uh, celebrities to to really. Um, perform at their at their ugliest yeah in a good way yeah yeah right he gets maximum vulnerability uh from his actors yes i never would have expected that matthew mcconaughey would play a character like the character he does which is kind of like a fresh-faced pretty boy who then we learn has a i don't want, i mean basically uh is gay and uh into snm and then as i guess can happen with snm gets taken advantage of because i guess once you're tied up it's easier to be taken advantage of that's right that's just a law of physics yeah yeah so he was there john cusack he was there, was there. Yeah. and uh also he was in the cradle of rock not to be confused with the hand that rocks the cradle which is like a horror film Mommy! 
The hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. But the cradle will rock, and I bring that up because it's actually about the WPA and all this art under um, FDR. Broadway, 1936. It was a time when artists like Orson Welles, John Houseman, and Diego Rivera were changing the rules. It's, it's great. It's with Susan Sarandon. I support your art, but that does not mean that I must support your revolution. And John Cusack actually plays Rockefeller. I'm Nelson Rockefeller. I've chosen your sketch to be included in the lobby the Rockefeller Center. And it's directed by Tim Robbins. So it's a very progressive uh, endeavor. It's a great movie. So yeah, John Cusack was there. Susan Sarandon was there. I got some great interviews. And I didn't tell you the biggest part, the biggest deal of this whole thing, Gabe, which is that guess who I finally got an interview with? Who is the someone I talk about quite a bit? Mark Ruffalo. No, but he's someone I do talk about quite a bit. Um, someone who was the, the gathering was, was kind of shaped around. Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders. I finally got it. Um, thank you so much for talking to me. Um, and one of the things that's really frustrating for progressives who support you is this narrative about you not being a feminist or you being anti-racist. How can we push back on that, given how much the corporate media seems to be interested in that narrative? Look, uh, the corporate media will do anything and everything they can to protect their own interests and say anything about anybody that they want. What we are fighting for is to bring people together, black and white and Latino, Native American and Asian American around an agenda that speaks to the needs of ordinary Americans and not just the 1%. And the only way we succeed is when we bring people together. Right. And I think there are many people in the establishment, in the corporate media, who are getting very nervous. They're getting nervous now because all of us, black and white and Latino, you know what we want? We want Medicare for all. Right. We want to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. We don't want our kids to be living in a planet ravaged by climate change. So we are making progress. We expect opposition to continue. Uh, and uh, we're going to do the best uh, in this fight that we can. And why is the media so interested in, in why do you think they're so threatened? Well, because it's Which obvious to launch the media. You know, when you look at corporate media, you're looking at uh, media owned by large um, uh, corporate uh, into, often international uh, corporate conglomerates uh, it, who are owned by some of the wealthiest people in this country or in the world. Uh, they do not want progressive change in this country. They do not want the wealthiest people to start paying their fair share of taxes. Uh, they do not want uh, us to uh, end uh, fossil fuel uh, production in this country. Yeah. So they're, they have comfort. And I just want to say, as a yeah. feminist, we love Bernie Sanders, and we think you're a big feminist, not just because of your stances on issues like reproductive rights, but also because of your economic and anti-war policies, which we know help women and people of color disproportionately. So I really want to thank you for that. Sorry, I couldn't help doing my little spiel, but something I've been wanting to tell the senator for a while. That was Bernie Sanders. Hell yeah. Yeah, I'm really happy I got that. It was a little embarrassing. I, I was fangirling out a little bit. So, finally got it. Yeah. You've achieved it. I've achieved it. I, I like to... You've you know, interviewed the... the bo That's the boss of the level. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I spoke to St. Bernard. Yeah. Um, Do you feel changed? Do you feel different? Like a changed woman? Um, A little bit. I mean, I'm what I'm hoping, Gabe, is that I don't want you to treat me any differently. 
Um, right. Now that you've, you've flown so close to the sun. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to keep myself grounded. Right. Um, it's hard, though. It's hard, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely understand you're, how Icarus felt. Yeah, you're hashtag blessed as well. Yeah. I just don't want to alienate our listeners. I don't want people to treat me differently. You've gone Hollywood. I've gone Hollywood, yeah. He is so funny. Like, he was just walking around like a normal guy. Sure. Um, yeah, it was kind of adorable. Uh, I, I overheard him giving an interview to The Real News, and he was talking about, like, Lloyd Blankfein. He's like, that was, you know what chutzpah is? It was chutzpah. This is chutzpah. Don't you know chutzpah? Which is cute. And he was kind of crotchety in the lovable way that he is. He's like, all right, let's get going. We've got to get going. You know, with the interviews. Sure. Not into glad handing. No, not into glad handing at all. Yeah. One of the people, by the way, I didn't get to interview was the mayor of Barcelona. So you're on notice, Ada Calau. But one of the, the best things, and we're, I'm going to try to get an interview with Yanis, the, not the uh, musician. Yeah. But the guy from Greece. Okay. The finance minister. Yeah. He was like considered really sexy. He's, but it was cool. They released at this institute, the Sanders Institute, they released the bold international Green New Deal that we will work together to deliver. It is time for progressives of the world to unite. Today, on behalf of DM25 and the Sanders Institute, we issue a call to action to create a global network of individuals and organizations that will fight together for dignity, peace, prosperity, and the future of our planet. Um, it was a little disorganized. They like tried to show the website and it didn't really pop up at first. Join the Progressive International by visiting this page. Well, we can't see it. <laughs> it was like blocked by things. Break it down, someone. Uh, it's progressiveinternational.something. <laughs> and it was interesting because they were talking all about how like we need to organize on an international level. We have all these progressives, Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie Sanders, who's not president yet, but we hope he is. And there isn't like a lot of coordination. So that was the idea. Sure. It's exciting. I interviewed Gus Newport, who was the mayor of Berkeley. I'm 83 now. My granddaughter suggests I'm four years older than baseball. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> but, but I feel like my whole life has been involved in police mispractices. My grandmother started taking me at the age of five. We grew up in Rochester, New York, to see Paul Robeson and Marion Anderson. My grandmother only went as far as the fourth grade because in Virginia, she went to school late after picking cotton one day. A white teacher slapped her. She walked out and never went back. But she became an avid reader. They got married real young in those days, so she moved her family first after my mother was born to Pittsburgh, where she had cousins, and then on to Rochester. She never told me until I was 26, ahead of the biggest civil rights group in Rochester, New York, after the black Muslim mosque was invaded, that her mother was a slave. And so I feel like the spiritualization she gave me by exposing me to all these things, it will keep me involved. As an 11-year-old, I was knocked off of a corner by a policeman just for walking because he felt I was walking too slow or whatever else, so I got involved in movements then. My feeling is, under those circumstances, that incarceration, as we know it in this country, is a continuation of slavery. Because when you think about it, we've got new jails on the stock market. You remember, it's the convicts who make the license plates and all that and get paid seven cents an hour. Um, as I said, I got to New Malcolm X when I was in Rochester, and the police invaded the black Muslim mosque. Malcolm called Daisy Bates from Little Rock, Arkansas, who was organizing, 
said, I'm coming to Rochester. Who should I talk to? And she gave him my phone number. Malcolm X called me and talked to me every night for two hours. I was just speechless. But he flew into Rochester, New York on a very cold February day. And I'm standing in the airport waiting for him. We'd never seen each other. And I'm surrounded by all these white men in white shirts and felt hats. And Malcolm comes through the door and said, who is Gus Newport? I said, I am, sir. He said, young blood, you got the best tap telephone in America. This is all FBI here. <laughs> so thank you so much, um, Mayor Gus Newport. It's really an honor to talk to you. Can you tell us about why you're here um, and what, what this movement is that you're involved in? I'm here because we're certainly looking for an alternative to the two-party system. I don't have that much faith in certainly not Republicans nor Democrats. I was one of the Bernie eight to the Unity Reform Committee to try to reform the Democrat National Committee. And I found out more about the Democrat Party than I ever wanted to know. Right. And including they were founded as the Dixiecrats. And of course, where they are with superdelegates now, the Electoral College and all that stuff. But nobody in the Democrat Party has ever spoken to all the issues in the depth that Bernie Sanders has. In his analysis, and of course, I first met Bernie. We were mayors at the same time. And uh, he and Dennis Kucinich and I used to be invited to Eastern universities to talk about public policy. And Bernie invited me out to uh, Burlington a couple of times. And he also invited me out when he ran for governor. And I don't know if you heard what I said yesterday, but we were sitting in his office the first day that I was here. And a reporter from UPI and AP were there and they pulled out this long sheet of paper. And Bernie said, what is that? She said, well, you know, we can put a public figure's name in and we got 90 stories on Gus Newport. Bernie, our question is why you, a Jew from Brooklyn, who's a socialist, invites Gus Newport, a former black nationalist and a socialist from Berkeley, to run to campaign with you for governor in a state that's 97 percent white. Bernie said, because we're going to talk about the issues, right. they had no more questions. Wow, that's I've loved them every since, yeah. you know. What do you think the challenges are for, I mean, there's this myth and this narrative, right, that this is, that socialism is a, is a white project. Um, it's, I don't know if you've heard this, like it's white male privilege to be talking about these issues. I think that it's a lot because of the media. I've talked about Nina Turner to this. There's a lot about night. Well, first of all, let yeah. me say that. The black church has played somewhat of a negative role because Christianity just hears socialism or communism. They don't know any better. My mother was very active in the church when I was a kid. And when those three young men got killed in Mississippi, she looked, what organization did she join in Rochester, New York? NAACP wasn't doing anything. My mother joined the Communist Party. Wow. When my father found out, he almost died. Wow. But but you must remember, I'm doing a film right now with some people on the last few years of Malcolm X. Malcolm was a socialist, and Martin Luther King was moving towards socialism when he talked about the war against Vietnam. Right. So they must understand that, but a lot of the black leaders didn't go along too. We've got to educate our own right. to become a, a, an integral part of this. So what? What? How do you see that? How do you see that? Like, what is your role in that, or what are you hoping to do? Well, Danny Glover and I have been going. We've gone to Mississippi and to. Uh, South Carolina with Bernie. Yeah. Danny can discuss things. We could, go, and we're going to do it. And if, the minute it appears that Bernie's going out there, and I sat next to him at dinner last night. No, I won't say what that. But uh, yeah. anyway, we're going to go organize. I'm going. To, I'm going into rehab now for this bad knee. I'm 83 oh. years old. 
But as soon as I do the water walking, I'm going to be ready to campaign yeah. nine, ten months out of the year. Yeah. So, uh, the media also has played a major role, right? I mean, we all, the, the well, smears, the media, let's the face it, let's face yeah. it. We are, the media translate what it wants to do, because, but, but look who they work for. Uh, CBS, right. whatever else, that's corporate America. Right. yeah. What do you think of the thir- of a third party? What do you think, like, what is your hope for the Democrats? I thought for a long time that we needed a third party, right. looking at what the two parties do, or at least some, so I think it's necessary. We're looking to find the America that was supposed to be, as Martin mm-hmm. Luther King used to say. A democracy we aren't. Yeah. A democracy we sort of, the founding fathers went about democracy. They were right. white men right. who basically wanted themselves trying Me to fifth. get away from the monarchy right. in, in, in Great Britain, come out of here and took full, full advantage of the Native Americans and uh, put them on plantations, etc., whatever else. Right. Uh, the first apartheid situation was created right here in America yeah. 300 years ago. And anything else you want to tell people, um, listeners? I or? just want, this was an exciting three days. Yeah. Jane Sanders needs to be given all the credit in the world for putting this together. And yeah. I think the substance of the discussions, etc., whatever else, has given all of us a challenge to put ourselves together, and we can focus heavily now, not worrying about what's going to happen between the Republican and Democrat Party, etc., yeah, whatever Yeah, that's else. over. We already but know, let's right? let's go do that which is in the best interest of our own people and certainly make sure there's a, a worthwhile future for the next generation. Can you just say a few words on neoliberalism and what you think the threat of that is? Well, you know, I was a mayor of Berkeley for eight years. I got drafted into politics because I was very active, you know, uh, left wing, uh, etc. It was the neoliberals that turned me off. They are single issue people, but they do not work around other issues. They mm-hmm. think, I mean, they usually come from third-generation wealth, um, well-educated, not a part of the working class, etc., right. whatever else. That's not, we're looking for real people. Um, I'm so curious more about your, your dad's response to your mom joining the party. My dad was an Abe Lincoln Republican. Oh, wow. He just, he only reacted for a minute. Yeah. My grandmother was very much church, too, but my grandmother started taking me to see Paul Robeson when I was five years wow. old. Wow. So she understood more that, about that, yeah. socialism and communism than what because her mother was a slave. My great-grandmother was a slave. And you only found When did you find that out? When I was 26 years old, after Malcolm X came to my home to visit me when I was head of a civil rights group. And my grandmother felt that I was ready to accept this So she hadn't told you before? Yes, she told right. you that. Wow. Um, it's my, speaking of Abraham Lincoln and, and Paul Robeson, I have family who were in the Spanish Civil War who right. went to fight against Franco. Right. And one of the things I worked on was I made a documentary about this monument built by political prisoners. Um, it's where Franco's buried. It's like disgusting right. fascist, right. you know, edifice, right. whatever. And I met a lot of the guys who had worked on it. And one of the men I met who was in his 80s, his grandson picked me up at the train station. This was in Spain. And he had never told his grandkids about that's his working on this it's, monument. It's like they don't want to share it's not bad slavery, times not or whatever right. else. That's what it's all yeah. about. Yeah. And, yeah, and especially there, I mean, and their civil war is much more recent, obviously. Oh, I know. But, um, I, I, I work with a lot of the Abe Lincoln guys. They used to come they out there in Berkeley. And right. We spent a lot of time. Yeah. Anyway, Premature I'm anti-fascist, as right. they're called, right? Well, thank you so much. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much luck. for your time. Right. Thank you. Yeah, bye. bye. Gus Newport. Inspiring. Oh, yeah. What a, what a guy. What a life he's lived, you know, having hung out with Malcolm X. I assisted Malcolm X as he left the Muslims. Mayor. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to have James Baldwin sitting in the front row <laughs> at, 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 at uh, my inauguration. Berkeley. 
I debated Saul Linsky. Black nationalist. Black nationalist, former black nationalist, friend of, ben- of Bernie's, FOB. But yeah, it's funny. I saw, I actually heard him speak at the Democratic Unity Commission. You know, he mentioned he was on that. And he is like much more sympathetic to millennials than a lot of younger people are. You got to think of the reality. The millennials just said they'd had enough. Obviously, there's this like narrative of the spoiled millennial. I mean, isn't that mostly from the media? Yeah. Like, is it, it's it's generated around like how millennials are like destroying Applebee's or whatever. But it's because they're no one has money. Right. Many of them know they won't be able to buy a house in their lifetime. They got to pay these student loans, et cetera, and other things. So it's not really the millennials that are causing the problems. Right. 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 It's the conditions that they're raised into. Yeah. It's not that they like avocados. Because the other thing, history is not recorded in the United States of America. It's propaganda. But it was just interesting hearing him say that because his finger was so on the pulse. And here's this guy in his 80s. Yeah. Who's like feels bad for millennials being trashed. If we could get past our own eagles and look at the issues in the state of our people, because even though we talk about the great things the Democratic Party has done, we are 37th in the world in education. Black America is at its lowest economic edge since the Jim Crow era. The Democrat Party still has a long way to go. I appreciate what we accomplished, but don't go out here bragging too soon when you look at the status of the American people, et cetera, whatever else. And this didn't just happen on Trump's hand. You know, Trump has only been there for a year. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's always the conditions of old people who are in power that make fun of the people who are underneath them who are younger. Too many of us who get into body politics look, eventually just focus on ourselves. You know, we got retirement for life, we got health care for life, but what about the people? Right. Because in some ways they're scared of their own death, and they see <laughs> death in the eyes and uh, fresh, young, taut skin right. of their children and grandchildren. They see their own death. That's mean. right. Yeah. They see their own death. Yeah, yeah, and the contrast of it, right? Totally. Yeah. You know, other it, it could come in a multitude of different ways. Yeah. You know, uh, it could be like when uh, like a like a Charlotte's Web type thing where like the mama spider, all the spiders that she gives birth to, like consume her first. Mm. You know how yeah. your kids are going to eat you. Yeah. Or it could just be death in general. Right. But um, yeah, we uh, we should never fear the new and the young. And he's one of the older guys who like in his 80s who doesn't fear that. That's right. And like credits them. Yeah, because um, he's, he's like a human being in touch with his himself. Yeah, he's woke. He stays woke. And so I say, again, I'm really pleased to have been a part of this. But I'm going out of here with my head held high. But damn sure I'm not going out with the accomplishments that I'd hoped. And I love all y'all. But don't think the job is done. Thank you. I interviewed the mayor of Stockton, California, who's really young, 28. Um, I was reflecting last night and I realized that things we fight for um, were things that were so important to me now, but even more so 20 years ago. Um, so before I was mayor, I was a poor, young, a black child on the south side of Stockton with an incarcerated father and a mother who had me at 16 years old as a teenager. Um, so the things we fight for, like affordable health care, affordable child care, entitlement programs like WIC and Head Start, all paved the way for me to be on the stage today. So I want to start by thanking all of you the activists, the thinkers, the organizers, for creating a world that we know is not perfect, but could be worse, and that the fact we're here today is to push and to bend the moral arc of the universe. So I want to start by saying thank you. Um, So Stockton, California is a city in the Central Valley of California. It's about 320,000 people. 
Um, it's between San Francisco and Sacramento, about an hour and a half away from Silicon Valley, and about an hour away from Sacramento. And it's incredibly diverse. Um, my city is 35 to 40% Latino, 35% white, 10% African American, 15 to 20% um, Asian. Um, our city is also ideologically diverse, 60% Democrat, 40% Republican, which means a lot of things we're doing that are progressive aren't happening in liberal bastions, but are happening in tough conversations with people who may not agree with me on every national choice and decision. Um, and to the mayor's point, I think we organized ourselves in Stockton around three main tenets. Um, number one, that indeed the status quo is unacceptable. And since it is unacceptable, we have a mandate, we have a duty, we have an obligation to do something um, to make it better. Um, the second tenet that organizes our work is this idea of structural violence. Um, I remember reading Mountains Beyond Mountains and Dr. Paul Farmer talked about structural violence as the avoidable impairment of basic human needs. Um, so my administration, we organize ourselves around the idea that government can't do everything, but we have to do something to solve structural violence, because I would argue a lot of the violence we see in our streets are just symptoms of a deeper structural issue, that, that it's no stranger, it's not a surprise that we could pinpoint neighborhoods in every city in this country where you expect to see high rates of gun violence. And why is that? Because they have low rates of literacy, they have more liquor stores and grocery stores, they have more check cashing places and banks, they have zero jobs. They, as we like to say in Stockton, they're oftentimes high in everything bad um, and low in everything good. And it's not the, necessarily the individual choices um, that people are making. And our third kind of governing and organizing frame in Stockton is as government, the most important investment we can make is actually in our people. That cities aren't buildings, they aren't stadiums, they aren't um, new developments, but they're people, flesh and blood people, and all our people. So folks who are rich and folks who are poor, folks who are documented, folks who aren't documented, folks who are young, folks who are old, folks who speak English and folks who are learning. That, that the only Stockton is nothing more than its people. Growing up, the narrative was always escaping Stockton and never saw myself coming back to Stockton. But I was lucky enough to graduate high school, go to Stanford, and I thought I hit the lotto. That's going to make a lot of money. Um, and then I entered in the White House, so my job was working in intergovernmental affairs. So I just worked with mayors and councils all day, every day, and I saw progress happening at a local level in a way it, it wasn't happening at the federal level. Because this was in 2010 when the Tea Party had just taken back the House, and we thought that was the worst thing ever. If only we, <laughs> if only we right. knew what was down, down, down the road, yeah. <laughs> Um And then around the same time, one of my cousins was a victim of a homicide in Stockton, and that kind of murder caused me to think about what did success mean if it was only for me? Mm. Um, so then I decided the next year to run for city council in my old neighborhood, did that for four years, had some wins, but it still didn't feel like enough. It was like, what can we do citywide? How do we just not reframe the conversation about a neighborhood or a district, but reframe the face, the dialogue, and the narrative around the city? So then I was crazy enough at 26 to decide to run for mayor, and it's been two years. Wow. And um, what brings you to the Sanders Institute? I think the issues that the Sanders Institute cares about, from health care, the environment, criminal justice, et cetera, are, are, are things that are super important to the people I represent in Stockton. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm here just to learn and hear what bright minds are thinking and to lend um, my voice and my support for causes that would advance sort of our nation towards this idea of a more perfect union. Right. And what are the other issues? I mean, what did you? Were you inspired by Sanders in 2016? Um, what I especially appreciated the fact that Senator Sanders came and spoke um, in Stockton during the mm -hmm. presidential campaign, um, which was unheard of for like, right. someone running for president to come to Stockton. And I was able to introduce him. And I was also impressed with the number of people who were at that rally in the middle of the day, like five, 6,000 people. And Stockton's a super rabid political town. So I was like, wow, this message is resonating. And mm -hmm. I think 
that gave me the confidence to be a little more bold in my policies, prescriptions, or the pilot programs, et cetera, we're doing in the city. Because I saw just the hunger and the want for a government that actually is responsive and works for regular everyday people. Right. What was the most disappointing thing that you saw when you were working for the White House? The most disappointing thing I saw was just how politics is often divorced from like everyday people. Like the mm-hmm. conversations we would have would be in theory without, I mean, we're talking about extending unemployment benefits. Um, right. And it was tough because it was in exchange for extending the Bush era tax cuts as well, I think. Right. But some of the most, even the people for or against it, I remember I spoke up in one meeting and said, well, I'm, I don't have a decision in this, but I just know my cousin um, is kind of her unemployment insurance for Christmas. Right. So whatever we could do to ex- to make sure she gets that, I think we should take that seriously. And there's a lot of, so it's not her, because right after the recession, I said, there's a lot of people right. who have been on un- unemployment insurance for the last year and announced the holidays. So how do we right. make sure? And I realized that so much of policy is done in theory, but divorced from like the lives of everyday people. Right. So it lacks the urgency and like compassion Absolutely. that is needed, right? Absolutely. Um, and what are you working on now? So in Stockton, we're working on a bunch of things, but the big the big three things are number one, the universal scholarship program called Stockton Scholars, um, where every kid who graduates from our largest school district is guaranteed a scholarship to a community college, trade school, or a four year institution. Um, number two, a gun violence reduction program called Advanced Peace, where we're targeting um, the guys who are most likely to be victims and perpetrators of violent crime, but targeting them with the same attention from resources as they currently get from cops. <laughs> and see oh, wow. if that investment um, decision yields different outcomes. And we've seen a 35, 40% reduction in shootings and homicides this year. Um, and then the third thing that people talk about the most is what we're calling the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, which is a guaranteed income pilot. We're starting in February, 100 families for at least 18 months will be given $500 a month to test the efficacy of a guaranteed income to help stabilize people um, in times of financial volatility. And what do you think about the relationship between, that's often presented as divorce, between race and class, gender and class, gender and race? Um, uh, we absolutely have to be intersectional in how we think about think about things, because it's not just one thing, mm-hmm. but it's one thing in concert with the other. And I would argue that a lot of the things we're fighting against stem from this idea of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. I think there's 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 patriarchy rooted in that. There there's racism. There's class. All it's all rooted right. in, in, in in this idea. So we have to be intersectional in how we think about policies and programs. And and I, and I think we also have to be comfortable to creating the space to have because these are hard conversations. Right. These are like very difficult conversations yeah. to have. But to get to solutions, I think we have to have them. And what kind of things do you think work for? Um, like, how do you think we reach people who are either not engaged, who are Democrats who stayed at home, and the people who are, um, let's say, uh, Obama to Trump voters? Do you think that they have different needs? Do you think that they have overlapping needs, I, messaging? I think they have... I think their needs are similar in that some studies suggest that a lot of, and some to a lot of Trump supporters rooted in racial resentment, but some of it's also rooted in... I think they just wanted to see some of them right. with the racial reason. I don't think that sure, discounts right. racial reason, but I also wanted to see what the quote unquote leadership, something bold, yeah, bombastic, shocking. Yeah. But I think it was just something bold. Like just say something that's different, that's not vanilla. That even right. whether it's indifference is always good, as we see. But I think for some people, it's the fact that he was saying different or, or confirming their own biases yeah. or, or, or even if he would articulate bad solutions, he, and so, 
aside from his pro- problems with immigrants, some of the problems he articulated with sort of trade deals and the way they impact regular people and stuff were like not. Those are clear right. problems that we have to address. Yes. That doesn't mean blow up the right, whole right, right. world order. <laughs> but no, it does no, no, mean right. let's, let's let's fix it anyway. So so I think when I meant to blow up the system, I meant they meant like I meant like get no, rid of no, status no, quo. I agree right, with you. Right, yeah. and, and I think it's really about how do we give people something bold that's t- that relates to their everyday life that says I am seen, exactly. I am heard. This leader cares about what I'm dealing with. Right, so it's the opposite, in the opposite direction. Yeah. It's the, it's the uh, you're seen, you're heard, your pain is real. And, like, so Trump doesn't care about it, pretended he did. Bernie, I would say, of course, because I like Bernie, does care about it, hmm. said that he did. And it was like, I mean, he said something like this yesterday, but it's like, one blames, it's like, I feel your pain, blame Mexicans and Muslims. And one is like, I feel your pain, blame billionaires and millionaires <laughs> or whatever. Which um, I think is a, like a really significant difference that mm. sometimes people don't see and they almost equate the two of them mm. because they, they can reach an overlapping audience. But I think that that's like a, such an important thing to do mm. that you don't defeat a right wing populace with a moderate. No, you, you, you actually can't. Right. Right. It's just so. <laughs> there's no middle. Like yeah. he's an extreme right. Yeah. How are you going to do that? Um, and what do you think about like there's this other argument, this this dichotomy or not, I don't know, the racial resentment and tell me if, if they're here and you need to leave, but the racial resentment and the economic anxiety stuff, right? So there's this big debate about that and some people pretend it's only one and some well, the other. I, I struggle because I think folks of color have been poor for a long time. Right. And for example, black women vote 90 plus percent like so i i i i think the economic anxiety right. explains in part but if that was the whole of the answer all the folks who experienced economic anxiety would have voted for trump because you mean they would the idea is that you're more susceptible to bigotry yeah, and so they would have been or if economic anxiety is motivating you to vote for trump right. how come the folks who are the most economically right. anxious in our society yeah. historically right didn't right, right. Vote, yeah didn't vote for trump so i think economic anxiety is, is a part of it but to the other point about intersectionality right. i think we also have to layer on um, race, race, race on course, uh, race right. on top of that. Do you read Brianna Joy Gray at all? You, I, I need to. Yeah, yeah, she's great. I'll introduce you. You guys should like definitely meet online. But um, she was talking about this with Mehdi Hassan um, from the Intercept. This debate, and again, it's framed often in these ridiculous <laughs> and either or class <laughs> or race, right? And she was like, "I'm not going to say one is more important. Just like I'm not going to compare um, the Holocaust or slavery and yeah, decide. I, what, you know, I thought it was a good comparison to another comparison she wouldn't make. Um, but she was saying that." For her, it's like the, the which what she thinks is happening is it's the, not the anxiety, economic anxiety per se, but it's the the slipping away, the falling back in line. She doesn't deny that there's racism there, but for her, her thing is that like the, the, those people need to be spoken to in a way that doesn't throw anyone else under yeah, the bus. Yeah, we, I don't yeah. think we can forget about. We shouldn't forget about them. We should have hard conversations with right. them. But I think a lot of it is an education thing as well. Yeah. Like no. This person is not, but I mean, historically, since Bacon's Rebellion, yeah. um, poor white folks have voted against their interests. Right, so, right. so it's not a new phenomenon. Yes, and right, I don't right. Think the question is how. Done enough work right. to like sit down and actually show people why is it in your best yeah. interest to cast your lot with these folks yes. who don't look like you. Can you do that? You're such a good speaker. I want I'm, let's put together a panel who can do that be, and travel I'm around the country. Doing my best. Yeah. Doing my best. No, you're. I mean, you, it seems like you obviously are really inspiring and you reach people and. Um, Thank you for your. No, thank you. I was going to say service, but that sounds too like, I don't know. It sounds not as. Re- I don't want to say re- you're a rebel, but you're too. Um, what am I saying? I'm pre-coffee right now. No, by the way, fine. you're like too. 
inspiring or oh. revolutionary in a way, but not like in a, in a threatening to order way. To just say service. That oh. sounds so vanilla. Uh, service, so, yeah. not, uh, service, okay, service is kind enough. Thank you. Okay, yeah. Thank you so much. And where can people find you and um, online? I'm and- on Twitter at, at Michael D. Tubbs, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-D-T-U-B-B-S. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Of course, climate change was a huge thing, and they talked about the New Green Deal. Yeah. Which is which is a big deal. Um, speaking of FDR and the New Deal, they have the New Green Deal. I interviewed Naomi Klein. To be with you and, um, and to be with this fantastic panel. Um, I guess the first thing I would say is that there are lots of Green New Deals. You know, there isn't this one thing that is the Green New Deal. Um, there is momentum towards the idea of using the scarce time uh, leading up to 2020 to get as specific as possible about what a sweeping intersectional transition would look like if it took science and justice seriously, if it embedded justice in the heart of the scientific imperative to get off of fossil fuels in this epic hurry, right? The IPCC report tells us we have a terrifying 12 years to reduce our fossil fuel use by 45%. And don't let your brain play a trick on you and tell you that that means you can start in 12 years. No, <laughs> by 12 years, we need to have be down by 45%. And by mid-century, we need to be off carbon completely, right? So that means we need to have started yesterday. Um, and this is, I think, why the 2016 election was so devastating to all of us who follow the science, right? And it was devastating to everybody for all kinds of reasons. but. What all of us who follow the science know is that we just can't lose these four years, right? So I think what is so exciting about the momentum that is building towards creating a select committee, and this is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's proposal to create um, a select committee that would spend the next year consulting um, with movement leaders, um, including climate justice leaders who have come up with this whole model of embedding justice in in our climate response. Because for far too long, the truth is that the environmental movement didn't do that and didn't think enough about people and sort of had this um, idea that, you know, because climate change is so important, first we'll save the planet and then we'll worry about poverty and racism and gender exclusion. And you know that's a way to build a really small, homogenous movement um, that is filled with privileged people who don't need transformative change um, and, in fact, are very invested in the status quo, right? I mean, Arundhati Roy, the wonderful novelist, talks about how a lot of environmentalists ask the question, how can we change without changing? Right? And if the status quo is working for you, that makes sense, right? Can we, can we do a little carbon trading? You know, can, we, um, you know, can we change our light bulbs? Um, you know, how, can we, how can we change in a way that, dis- that, that disrupts a system that is working for me and my friends as little as possible, right? And I think the great wisdom of the environmental justice movement and the climate justice movement um, for all these years um, has been to say uh, that that actually the people who are who are 
the least threatened by the kind of systemic change that science is now demanding, and the IPCC report is very clear, and that the, just lest, lest we overlook it, they made it their very first line of the summary of the IPCC report, uh, that what is required now is transformation of every, of, of every aspect of society. In other words, a political revolution, right? Um, and you know, when I first started writing about the fact that capitalism and, and, and climate were in conflict, uh, I got a lot of pushback from our friends in the environmental movement who would say things to me like on the, on the down low, like, why are you making our jobs harder? You know, climate change is hard enough. Well, why do we have to make it about capitalism? And my response was always, actually, capitalism isn't working for a huge number of people on this planet. And if we can, if, if we can come up with a framework uh, for responding to climate change that is actually a challenge to economic inequality, joblessness, economic precarity, uh, the need for Medicare for all, and the rest of it, then actually we're going to build a much broader movement, and also a movement that will fight harder, because it has so much to gain. Because not only is it not threatened by systemic change, it's hungry for it. Right? Um, so in terms of your, you know, your question of where did this come from, I mean, frankly, I don't really know. Uh, um, you know it, it's come together really, really quickly. But I think the exciting part about the timeline, looking at the resolution, is that it, it sets a deadline of January 2020 to come up with a plan for a Green New Deal, right? That is a, all, uh, simultaneously a plan to uh, virtually eliminate poverty a huge jobs program that touches on transportation, agriculture, energy, housing. Um, and this is the problem with the way we've traditionally dealt with climate change, I think, in the past, is that it has been so siloed. Um, and you know, we're always looking for that sort of magic bullet. And so this creates a framework for all of these different sectors to talk together. I think by using the phrase New Deal, it reminds us that there is a historical precedent for responding to right. collective crisis um, with transformational change. But it should also be a reminder um, that that first New Deal didn't have enough justice embedded in the center um, by any means. And there were many people who were excluded by design, many African-American workers. You know, the 30s were a period when a huge number of Mexicans were deported um, to eliminate competition from white workers in the United States. Domestic workers were excluded from so many New Deal era policies, agricultural workers. So this New Deal has to be not only green, but for everybody, right? And, and so, so you've got this timeline, which conveniently is at the beginning of the 2020 cycle. Um, and if there is you know, a truly participatory process that draws on the wisdom of these movements that have been developing this idea for so long, um, and the local governments that are already trying to build it in miniature, um, and the best scientists, and, and all the best knowledge, and the best practices around the world, then that means that there could be a plan that really it comes from this interplay between uh, movements working from below and this exotic thing of having a, a, a critical mass of politicians who are not afraid of, of, of transformational change. Um, and it could form the basis of a people's platform in 2020. And any candidate who wanted to run as a progressive would need to run on the Green New Deal. 
Why do you think, like, it's in everyone's self-interest on some level, right, to combat climate change, to deal with climate change? Like, someone who has a kid now, someone who has a grandchild, like, what do you think is going through someone's head when they they say climate change isn't real, when they do whatever Trump does, when they do whatever moderate Dem does, whatever they do that doesn't um, treat this as an emergency, what do you think is going through their head in terms of their own self-preservation or their own children's futures or grandchildren's So futures? I think those are different questions, like what somebody who's actively denying climate change yes, is doing versus right. somebody who who doesn't deny it but isn't treating Treating, it like an emergency. So I'm going to tackle that one first, which is I think that, frankly, um, you can't deal with climate change as an individual, right, in in any meaningful way. Like you can do things to um, symbolically lower your personal carbon footprint, but if you really do understand the scale of the disaster and how quickly we need to lower our emissions, you know that the choices that you make as an individual are meaningless in, in, in the scheme of things, right? So those choices are would only be meaningful if they were in the context of a sort of wartime level mobilization that um, that that had a plan, you know, for where all the pieces fit together and what our targets were and how we were going to do this together. And that's what we haven't had. So I think in some sense it is reasonable in the absence of a plan that is commensurate with the crisis to to think that it doesn't really matter you know because i think for there there were decades when people dutifully changed their light bulbs and you know dutifully did all the like green things in their homes and recycled and then they looked around and like wait a minute you know um we have a, a so-called green president who's, you know, opening up f- new fracking and frontiers and saying it's okay to drill in the Arctic. Like that doesn't make sense, right? right? So, um, I think there's a way in which it's perfectly rational to think that what you do as an individual doesn't matter in this fight. It doesn't. It, what right. matters is what we do as a collective, and that's why this is an ideological battle, because we are up against an ideology that actually doesn't believe in collective action, um, that thinks there's something wrong with planning an economy. Um, So, and we need to, we really, really need to, because you do not get off of fossil fuels in the timeline that we have without a plan, you know, Um, without a a very serious industrial strategy. You can have an ideological battle about whether or not you like planning or not, but that doesn't change the fact that you will not achieve this without a plan. Um, So, you're at the other half of it, which is, you know, the people who are outright denying climate change. Or claim change. to be denying, right? Or claim to be denying. groups there too, right? Absolutely. There are. Um, I think there are many people who use deny. I don't think, I don't think Donald Trump has any doubt that climate change yeah. is happening. You know, he, he knows it's impacting his golf courses. Right. Mar-a-Lago is going to be underwater, right. you know? Um, he does know that, but I, I, I believe he, be, he, I believe that he believes that his wealth will protect him, right. um, that he will be able to buy his way out of it. Um, we know that a lot of very wealthy people are investing in all kinds of yeah. privatized disaster protections. I mean, Kim and Kanye had a private, you know, fire force protecting their house during during the California fires. And that's something I wrote about, you know, 10 years ago that's been happening. So and you saw the yes men, right? The yes men save the world when they have like a survival. They go present the survival ball or something. (laughs) I forgot about that. We want something that's going to be able to save a human being no matter what Mother Nature throws at them. And so this is the answer. 
This is the Halliburton survival ball. No, but but even the things that the real world things that I think very wealthy people think are going to protect right. them, you know, are, are 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 by no means you know a guarantee. Right. Um, but we saw this after after Superstorm Sandy in, in New York that luxury, um, you know, luxury condominium building right. started marketing the fact that they had um, you know their own generators and right. and I mean some of them had like submarine style doors and I mean moats I mean, right. um, this is part of you know real estate for the super rich right now is 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 storm protection that at the same time as you have economic austerity for everybody else um, you can see how these ideas can coexist how you can starve the public sphere and think you're all right, right. Um, but I, I think there's something deeper in that I think that climate change is a th- it, you know it is a such a fundamental threat to the entire Republican project that you have to you have to deny the reality of climate change because if you have a worldview that is all about deregulation, privatization, um, cutting your taxes, cutting the public sphere, I mean, it can't survive for a minute up against the reality of climate change. We need massive investments in the public sphere. Um, you know, we need to regulate corporations and tell them they can't do the things that are destabilizing our climate. It, um, we need to plan our economy. We need to break every single one of their sacred right. rules. And that's just not viable. And they have a very profitable political project and they're going to protect it. So I don't think they're just protecting their fossil fuel interests right. uh, and the fossil fuel interests of their funders. I think that's part of it. But I actually think it's a smaller part of it than the broader threat that it poses to their entire worldview. Um, and I even think it's deeper than that in the sense that I think that the entire, I think there's a reason why um, climate change denial is strongest in the United States, Australia, um, and you know some parts of Canada, mm-hmm. like Alberta. I mean, I think that in settler colonial states, which are all about um, this idea of infinite wilderness to dominate um, as a response, frankly, to Europe hitting up against its ecological limits. I mean, that was the whole idea of, quote unquote, New England. Like, hey, we found a New England, right. you know. Um, and so there is like it, it's so fundamentally uh, about overcoming the idea that there are any natural limits right. to uh, the quest for for profit, um, that if you were going to accept the reality of climate change, it means that you're accepting the, 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 the fact of ecological limits. And so it's, it's a narrative crisis. It's a, it's a crisis of worldview and ideology. And, and so I don't find it surprising that people deny it. I actually got a really interesting interview with a security guard in the hotel I was staying at. It was really interesting because I got home from the first day of the conference and I was I got home to the hotel. And I started speaking with the security guard who asked me where I was from. And then I asked him where he was from. And he said, Louisiana. And I was like, oh, it's interesting. What brought you here? And he was like, actually, it was kind of Bernie Sanders who brought me here. And then he explained that he had like, you know, a lot of uh, unfortunate experiences in Louisiana and he needed to. Why? It's a, it seems like such a lovely, such a lovely state. state. Yeah. Um, actually very close to the the paperboy location with with the everglades and 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 he actually said he was like i partly i came because of bernie sanders because i felt like someone who was the mayor of the city and this was in burlington the sanders institute gathering he felt like someone who would be 
elected someone a place that would elect someone like bernie sanders would have more compassion than other cities he was very eager to talk and i said do you want to do an interview and he said yes and i went up and upstairs and i got my um, microphone and we did an interview and he told some really fascinating stories about that and he's one of these people who's like incredibly uh, insightful and intellectual and astute and grew up raised by very strong Christians. And he talked about becoming non-Christian, becoming an agnostic and an atheist. And the thing that made him do that, he says, was that he was speaking in tongues one day uh, when he was a teenager. And he- I never learned how to do that. I'd love to try. I know, we could do it. Well, I'll look up some YouTube videos and figure out how they do it and then yeah. I'll- Well, apparently, according to him, it's very easy to do. And he was saying he just faked it. Sure. And- It's like scatting for Jesus. Yeah, it is. It's scanning for for Jesus. And he faked it and he said that it was while he was faking it and people were looking at him as if it were real that he realized what BS it was. Um and and that that was something that made him start to question God. Um and now he's an atheist. So it was an interesting way to kind of tie in what we were talking about. Can you tell me your name? Whatever to the extent of which you want to tell your name? Sure. Your we'll go name. with first name, Sean. Sean, okay. And you do, what What do you do? So, yeah. Well, uh, security guard. Okay, so tell me where you're from and what brought you to uh, Vermont. Okay, so it's a long story. Um, Louisiana, I'm from Louisiana. And, uh, you know, it's a variety of reasons. I'd have to say... Uh, being in Louisiana wasn't a pleasant experience for me. Uh, growing up, I had plenty of, you know, like family issues, that sort of thing that negatively impacted like my education. Where in Louisiana, by the way? Uh, uh, you don't know Duck Dynasty? I've, I haven't watched it, but I know what it is. Yeah. The guys yeah. The I'm from yet. where they from. They're from. Which is what? West Monroe. I heard you just say they from. That was a little <laughs> Louisianian, right? Maybe. I, yeah, I think it Monroe, depends. Okay. How close is that to New Orleans or Baton Rouge? or? Uh, Pretty far. Okay. Honestly, like it'd be quicker to go through Mississippi to get to New Orleans than it would be to drive through Louisiana okay. from there. So what? what is... I mean, I'm so bad at geography, but we're talking about northeast. Northeast. Oh, okay. I said yeah. that. Okay. Never, okay. Got it. Northeast. All right. Um, so, okay. So I cut you off. Sorry. But you were in Louisiana. You said it's some negative fam... Uh, Stuff yeah. that affected your education? Well, uh, it started, you know, at least back as, as far as five, you know, typical family divorce, that sort of thing. Uh, honestly, like, there's a lot of stuff in there, some of which some people might far find hard to believe that happened. Um, least of which is, like, negligent behavior. Um, they were more interested in, you know, like, fighting with each other than they were raising the kids. So... Um, those being the least of my problems while well, during that time period, um, it led to me not really focusing that much on school, even in like middle school and high school, mm -hmm. um, to the point to where I would typically go from like advanced classes or AP classes. And instead of doing like the homework, I would just drop down to an easier class where I knew I didn't have to work and I could just get, you know, like a 3.0 or something. Right. So... Um, that was typically how I handled my problems was just go do something easier. Um, and eventually like I graduated high school and I had to like actually start trying to be an adult and trying to fix things and solve things. And so, uh, the first thing I really did was, uh, even though I was like in college, I, I focused more on learning about news and politics and 
that sort of thing, to try to figure out what it was that I believed. Um, in high school, I uh, my family was, you know, deeply religious. Mm. And I eventually came to the conclusion that, you know, I, I wasn't. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't really believe in the things that they believed in. So that kind of ostracized me for a bit. And How did you realize it? Well, I, uh, I was in a youth, uh, a youth group, and they were praying for everyone to be able to speak in tongues. <laughs> and I eventually was able to do it. And, uh, and I realized that I was just speaking gibberish. Right. And so wow. my, my thought process was kind of along the lines of, well, this is doubt. This is obviously something God wouldn't be too happy of. If he really, if this was really a gift he was giving me and I showed like this kind of doubt in his gift, would I really still be able to do it? And right. then the other thing was like, I just, you know, kind of like guessed at it, just, you know, babbled yeah. a little bit. Right. Whatever. And so no one saw through it. So you're like, this is BS yeah. maybe. And so like, I think there was a moment where I made eye contact with the preacher huh. and I was having this realization of like, I don't believe any of this. Right. And I think he kind of recognized it. Cause at that point I was at the center of the group where everyone were laying their hands on me to try to help me receive the gift. Uh-huh. And I just kind of stopped. I just, Wow. You know, maybe this isn't what I thought it was. Like you stopped right there or like, you mean you stop, you like. I gave it a few sentences of, you know, speaking in tongues. Yeah. And then I was like, yeah, maybe this isn't real. And so, was it dramatic depart? Like, was everyone like, what's going on? Or did you just go about, did you just leave kind I, of like subtly? No, I think, uh, I think maybe enough sentences were spoken that people thought that it worked. And right. the pastor maybe realized quickly enough that. It was time to move on, so like it didn't really strike anyone as right. odd. So, what does moving on mean? Uh, moving on with a sermon, like Got you it. know, uh, uh, going and praying for somebody else, putting All your right. hands on somebody else, and having just moving on right. with the whole so thing. So he's like, okay, that's good. Um, next person, like, yeah. Has how did uh, it work? Obviously not those words, but, you know, yeah. it's just a lot of, like, speaking in tongues. Like, a lot of the times the adults, especially the more experienced and practiced, uh, will often uh, speak in tongues. And that, that, honestly, there's no better way to, like, get a message across than to say that you said something deeply profound that no one can understand. <laughs> right. So right. it's fairly easy to have a deep, meaningful uh, session, I guess, if you want to call it that deep, meaningful ceremony. Right. If... if people just believe that you said something right it's worthwhile neat. yeah uh and how old were you at this point 13 maybe 14 oh okay and so then when did you do um i i i, I didn't stop believing immediately mm -hmm. it was just a thing of like this doesn't feel right and i have doubts now and i honestly came to the conclusion that the, my relationship with God was an unhealthy one mm. and that if it was going to be a real genuine relationship, then, you know, it would have to be two sided. He <laughs> would have to reach out to me and talk to me. Right. And that's kind of what I wanted. Like I wanted to hear the voice in my head, the voice of God talking to me and it just never happened. And that, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm very grateful for never having heard the voice now right. that I have a different perspective. But at the time, it was a very unsettling, scary, and I honestly felt a bit guilty huh. over the whole situation. And, 
you know, maybe like I did something wrong or maybe there was something wrong with me. Right. So you left um, Louisiana and mm-hmm. then you, how did you decide where to go? Like the whole deal is like Vermont does have, I see Vermont as going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Maybe I would have liked to have seen a Democratic governor this last election so that I could have my health care sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the... Vermont is now a more attractive place for liberal people. And as more people move here, it's going to become more and more liberal faster. Right. And it's going to be easier to get things like Medicare for all. Um, And to be honest, like, I wasn't necessarily entirely aware of the political situation of Vermont. I just knew it leaned more Mm -hmm. uh, liberal. So I was still taking a huge risk. I mean, I did research, but I also was like, I was on my edge. Like, I'm I'm done. Like, I'm leaving, and anywhere is better than here. I need something different. I need something new and better in my life. So you come here, and you're homeless for how long? I was on the streets for two weeks where I finally got into the homeless shelter for COTS. That lasted about three months, and I'm in transitional housing now. So I am in the process of still, like, trying to get into a house, but I've technically been housed for the most of the time that I've been here. Okay. Um, according to the, to the state of Vermont, I do have a... Uh, I have been home in a home since I got into the homeless shelter, which... It, it's very technical. Like it didn't feel like home, and, and you do have to leave the the uh, shelter for most of the day. You cannot stay after 8 a.m., and you could not come back until after 6:15 p.m. So, what would you do during the day? Well, it depends on who you are and what you have. What going would you on. do personally? At first, nothing. Like I would go to the day station and just sit there all day listening to YouTube videos. What's trying. the day station? I don't even know what that means. Um, there are two stations here with cots. The day station oh, is where you go during the day, where you can get shelter from the rain and stuff during the day. The way station is where they offer beds to people. The way station is a lot harder to get into. Anyone can walk into the day station, but there are a limited number of beds and they do have safety concerns and stuff like that so they do uh they do restrict the amount of uh people who can go to the Mm -hmm. way station um so yeah they're honestly like the the whole being homeless thing it's a lot more difficult of a topic than people really understand um especially until you've either been on one side or the other because there are a lot of concerns and risks and i think it's a really hard situation to understand even if you're going through Mm -hmm. it. Um, But honestly, I think that you have to decide what you think is moral in this case. Do you think it's moral to let these people stay outside even though they uh, obviously have these issues? Do you think that you should, you know, do you think that that's the right thing to do because you can't, because in your mind you think there has to be a limit. In my mind, I think Utah has it right. What do they do? They, They have basically they build housing for the homeless like i think from what i understand it's the lowest barrier to entry for home for anyone i think they uh i'm not as familiar on this as i should be uh, for bringing it up but the basic idea is like it's it's rent free you don't have to pay for anything Hmm. at first it's not great housing like it's just meant for you and it's meant to help you get on your feet you go in you don't have to pay anything for a while. You can clean up. You can get comfortable. You can get sober. And you can get a job. You can get set up. You can have people who help you orient mm. yourself and help you find a, a job. 
and eventually you you uh, when you do find a job after you've worked long enough they will start charging you rent at a discounted rate it won't be like luxury rates or anything like this housing is meant to be temporary not temporary but it's meant to be for people who are struggling and getting back on their feet um in my mind i think that the reason why i might sound conservative is because i think that the even the vermont solution is a very conservative solution in my ideal world world we would have enough housing for everybody and there would be government supplied housing and I would be open to hearing any sort of thing. Like, I, I honestly think that you have to be willing to give someone a chance, even if it seems like it's not yeah. worth it. So I do honestly think that even these people who are causing problems for COTS should be put in housing of some sort, should be given their own private space and treated like a human being. Kind of maybe the most interesting in a way of all the interviews I got, because the speakers were, were spending a lot of time talking about poverty and about inequality and you know what people are going through so it was an interesting way to kind of tie in what we were talking about um yeah and i think that's it and uh we're gonna see you soon anyway so yeah this was a great uh i thought a great conference i'm glad i could share it with listeners i'm glad i could share it with you gabe i'm glad uh to find out that it happened yeah i think we learned a lot um we learned a lot about uh neo how bad neoliberalism is uh, I think, yeah. Hey, tune into any episode. <laughs> and we to, make that point? Yeah. Yeah. We learned a lot about how good Sanders is. Tune into any episode. Uh, we learned a lot about how uh, you can't separate race and class. Hey, guess what? Every tune episode. Every episode, yeah. Well, uh, is there anything new you'd like to share about anything? Observations about love, life, loss? Uh, I feel pretty good about everything happening in my life right now. Um you can always come see me every Wednesday at 10 p.m. at Pete's Candy Store for Funhouse Comedy live. And uh, this uh, Friday, what? Uh, well, I have to go get the information now. I'll be right back. Okay. Hey, and uh, December 14th, I am going to be hosting a live variety sketch show called Sofa Kingdom. And it is going to be, you can watch us live on Facebook Live, Sofa Kingdom, and it's starting at 8 p.m. on December 14th. And also check out Eat, Pray, Judge, which is a film review podcast that I do with my old roommate, Sammy Hamarne. And December 14th is a Friday? That's a Friday. Okay, awesome. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, you can always tune into the Katie Halper Show on iTunes, on SoundCloud, if you want to follow us on social media, I'm uh, on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm KT Halps. That's letter K, letter T, H A L P S. Um, you can find, you can use the hashtag KT Help Show. That's letter K, letter T, H A L P S H O W. You can find us on Facebook. Gabe, you're Gabe underscore Pacheco. That's right. Um, yeah, and I think that's it. And uh, we're going to see you soon. Um, by the way, just so you know, we've got great future guests coming down the pike. we got Aida Chavez from The Intercept. we got um, Ted Alexandro, very funny comedian. we got Johan Hari, um, a really great writer who writes a lot about depression and addiction. So we think you're really going to like this. And um, make sure you become Patreon subscribers because on this week's episode, we offer you the rest of that interview with Naomi Klein. So you will not regret it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Cool. Bye, guys. See you next week. <laughs>